Welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Ron, it is so good to have you. We have with us on Nelda Live today, Ron Clark. So glad to have you. Welcome. Um, thanks for having me. Glad to be on the show. Ron, I used to be a teacher of uh, low-income students. I uh, taught at a Title I school. My kids all uh, had free lunch, free breakfast, worked with families that are new to the country. Uh, and I remember being introduced to you on Oprah around 2001, I think that was. And I... Um, I also think I've heard you speak in person, but I uh, was so inspired by you and, and really continue to be inspired by what you do. Um, you have had an incredible journey as an educator, but you didn't want to be a teacher at first. Tell us about that. No, I grew up in the country in Eastern North Carolina, and I just wanted to travel. I wanted to be on an airplane. I wanted to go around the world. And um, I didn't know how what I was going to do when I did that, but I just knew I didn't want to be tied down to any one place. My parents had been on an airplane before, and I just had these big dreams. So when I graduated from East Carolina University, I was the first person in my family on either side to go to college. I was working at a Dunkin' Donuts, and I saved up $600, and I bought a one-way ticket to London, England. I said, I'm, I'm going to get on a plane and go somewhere. And once I got to London, I worked as a waiter for six months, and then I got a backpack. I was going all over Europe, just trying to find adventure. I ended up in Romania, and I got food poisoning, and I had to fly back home. I was really sick. And when I flew back home, I was in the hospital for two nights, and a teacher at a local school passed away, a fifth-grade teacher, right in the middle of the school year. My mama said, you got to go teach these kids. They don't have a teacher. And I was like, I have no interest in teaching. And she said, well, go do it and make some substitute money or something. So I went to the school and I still didn't want to do it. But the principal said, let me introduce you to the kids. She brought me down to the classroom and this kid looked up and said, is she going to be our new teacher? And the class is going crazy. And the substitute teacher was having all kinds of issues. And I was like, I guess so. And then the next day I started teaching. And 25 years later, I'm still doing it. And wow. I absolutely love it. <laughs> 25 years. That's amazing. So you went from there, though, to Harlem. Tell us about that one, too, because that's another interesting aspect of this. Yeah, sure. So I taught in North Carolina for five years. I tried to be different. I stood on the desk, wrapped the lessons. I made it hands-on. Anything I could do to get the kids to be excited. And what I found is that if I built an environment where there was energy and passion and the kids wanted to be there, then they wouldn't mind doing the work. And then I realized I could also make it really hard. But if I made it fun at the same time, the kids would achieve great things. And so after five years in North Carolina, I had success there. And I saw a TV show about a school in New York City that had violence and overcrowded classrooms and a lack of teachers. And I said to myself, I'm going to go try all these methods there. I tried it in the country and it works here. Let me go see if it works in the city. And so during the summer, I drove up to New York. Um, said the YMCA, I couldn't afford anywhere else. So I was going up and down the streets and I found one of the schools and a 13 year old boy, it was June. They were still in school in New York. He came bust out of the side door and he was angry and his fists were clenched and he was huffing and puffing. I was like, good grief. And the resource officer came out. She was trying to drag the kid back into the building. So I just kind of followed them inside and she set the kid down and went to call his mom and get the principal. And this kid was sitting there like this. <laughs> 
just so angry and I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of sat down beside him. He kept going. <laughs> so finally I leaned over to him and I was like, you know what? I was breathing like that one time and I passed out. And he was like, <laughs> for real? And I was like, yep. And so we just started talking and laughing. And after like 10 minutes, he was a completely different kid. And he said, if you were my teacher, I wouldn't get in so much trouble. And I was like, maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is my school. And I begged the principal and I got a job there. And that's where I started teaching. Wow. So <laughs> where take us on the journey then from, from Harlem to the Ron Clark Academy and, and the Disney Teacher of the Year. How does all of that fall into place? So I did the same things in New York City. I, I, I've done everywhere. I visit every home of every child I teach before the first day of school. I right. work very closely with the parents. Um, I build relationships with my students. I tutor after school. I dress in costumes. I, I make all of the lessons engaging. And then I make it hard. That's kind of the key. The key, you got to make it hard at the same time. And so at the end of the year, the kids' test scores were through the roof. There was a lot of success. The next year, the same story. My method started to be heard about and spread. And um, I was named as the American Teacher of the Year, which is an award that Disney used to give for um, one teacher in America that was for teacher for the whole country. And then they have other awards like for the best math teacher, best science and so forth. So when I won the award, I got to go and be on the Oprah Winfrey show. And during the interview, Oprah leaned over and said, I want you to write a book. You've got to write a book about what you do. And so I wrote a book because when Oprah tells you to write a book, you write the book. <laughs> and the book's called The Essential 55 because I had 55 rules from my students in North Carolina and in New York City. 55 rules such as how to give a firm handshake, how to clap for other people and to be part of a team. Um, what do you do if you bump into someone? How to eat with proper etiquette? Just kind of rules that once I put those rules in place, how to ask for help, how to be respectful to your classmates. My classroom didn't become perfect, but once you're specific with people about what you expect, the results are greater. Like if you own a business, the more specific you are with your employees about what you expect, the better the result. As a teacher, as a parent, be very specific with kids, the results are better. Doesn't make it perfect, but better. And so the 55 rules are just basic Southern manners my grandma taught me growing up. Um, when the book came out, Oprah profiled the book on her show, went back on the show, and the book was crazy. One hour after her show, it was number one, number two in the nation behind the Harry Potter book for four months. It was right behind Harry Potter. The book was all over the place, and it made a lot of money, and all the money went into a foundation. Um, it made over a million dollars, and I said, let's just give it all away. So we put it all in a foundation, and we, the foundation um, used the money to buy an old factory in Atlanta, Georgia. It's, it was in the second highest crime rate area of Atlanta, and we bought that old factory, and we turned it into a school, and that school is now the Ron Clark Academy. And the Ron Clark Academy is, is visited by how many teachers from around the world every day? Um, we have a – it depends. Um, Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. <laughs> Pre-COVID, 600 a day. So we have 600 teachers a week who come from all over the world, China, Finland, Russia, India, all 50 states. They come to watch us teach because the way we teach is really, it's incredible. Everyone at the school doesn't teach like me. We're all very um, different, but every teacher in our building is the best teacher we could find in the country. We went to all 50 states. We visited 300 school systems. We have scoured the nation to find the best educators in our country, and we have them 
a lot of them just right here in this building. And so basically, if you come here as a teacher, you go from class to class, watching us teach, learning about our methods and techniques. We have over 30 kids in all of our classes. So you see what, what a typical teacher would, would experience. A third of our kids come, they've never been academically successful in school. A third of our kids come with behavior issues. A third of our kids are doing great. Um, one thing they do have in common is that for 75% of our kids, the average income is an average of $27,000 a year in the home. We do have some high income families and middle income families, but 75% are low income. And so when teachers come, they get to see how we're working with students who in some situations might be considered as a challenging, but we, we show how in the right environment, every kid can be successful. And so teachers come here and they cry, they, um, they just, they're grabbing on us. I've never seen this before. I didn't know it could be like this. I'm gonna go be a better teacher. And we have 85,000 educators who have been trained here so far. And now those 85,000 teachers are around the world in classrooms, um, making it harder, making it more fun, better relationships with kids. And we've shown them how to handle situations. So it's great stuff. That is amazing. Now, you really do teach a population of students that most people had given up on. So you do you, is there a secret sauce to what you do? I don't know if I'd say people have given up on them. I would just say that um, the population that we work with, when you talk about a kid who comes and they've never had academic success before, a lot of people would probably say, if, if you're not having success in school, you're not going to be successful in life. Or if you're a discipline problem, that's going to lead to future things. Um, and then if you're low income, it's a, it's, a, it's a poverty cycle. And so it, it does present challenges, but we have had great success. 100% of our students for the last 13 years have graduated high school. And we have 90% of our students are either in college or they've already graduated. And they're at Morehouse, Yale, Princeton, Spelman, Howard, Duke, Georgia Tech. They're at some of the best colleges all over the nation. So we've had a great deal of success. And what, we, what we've done is we've shown our method works, and now we share it with other people. That is so great. Yeah. Successful people oh, make other oh people my successful, okay. right? So that's wonderful. Um, your old-fashioned rules, let's just kind of go back to that. Sure. The civility issues and the, and the rules that you have. Why is it so important to you for the students? Yeah, um, it's all about structure. When I first started teaching in North Carolina, I had 34 kids in the class, and <clears throat> it was wild. Um, kids were all over the place. Nobody was paying attention. May I just hold you back for a minute? Did you just say 34? <laughs> That's a lot of children. <laughs> I don't know, because my classes here have over 30 in them, all of them. So I, to me, it's just normal. I still yeah. teach. I teach math and history. I just finished teaching my geography lesson. But um, yeah, but yeah, 34 kids. But this is going to be embarrassing to tell you but they were so bad that I had to do something. And forgive me because it was a different day and age and I was young, but I took the filing cabinets out of the back of my classroom and I put them between the rows. I got partitions from the library so that kids, if they looked to the right or left, they saw a filing cabinet or a partition and all they could do was see me or the head of the kid in front of them. So my whole room was set up like that and it was a crisis. And, and, and so, I, I tried to teach that way and it just felt so, uh, at the end of the day, I sit there and I was like, Ron, you got to do something. This isn't, you can't have partitions and filing cabinets everywhere. It's a mess. So that's when I sat down and said, what are these kids? What did they not know? And I was like, well, no one's taught them that when you bump into somebody, you say, excuse me. And nobody's taught them how to handle a situation. It's my calls them a name and nobody's taught them how to ask for help. So I just wrote all these 55 things. My grandma taught me because that she had prepared me with those things. 
And then I started teaching them to the students. And what I found was once I taught them to them, the results were incredible. I told kids, if, if, you, if someone bumps into you, you say, oh, excuse me, after you. And the kids will say, well, what if that's not my fault? I said, well, you still just say, oh, excuse me, after you. They say, what if I want to go first? I said, well, sometimes letting the other person go ahead of you, you get to be first here and you're first here, you're the bigger person. So we practice and we role play. And um, it was amazing then to watch kids, oh, excuse me, after you, after you. And I was like, wow, they just needed to be you know, given an example. And so um, then what I found is that once I did it with my class, my class became the best behaved class in the building. And then um, one of the rules is about being respectful to the cafeteria workers. And the cafeteria worker said, we love your class so much. We're going to give them ice cream. We want to give them ice cream every day. And the other teachers were like, why are your kids getting ice cream? I'm like, well, they're just being polite. So other teachers said, can we get your 55 rules? So that's kind of how it spread. And now it's in use in 26 different languages and over 50 countries around the world. They're using these 55 rules. It's crazy. That's crazy. That's wonderful. Congratulations for that. I mean, that really and truly. I mean, as a former educator, I just want to say, way to go. <laughs> so you, let's talk about the innovation then, because you said it's, it's, it's creativity, cleverness, boldness. Let's, let's talk about the way you're, you and your other teachers are innovative. Sure. I think a lot of it is it starts with the passion of the teacher. We never sit down in our classrooms. We stand up all day long unless kids aren't in the room. There's lots of movement, lots of energy in every class. There's some form of signs. Like, for example, if it's math class, math class. Now, when you have two negatives, you will get a bigger negative. Like everything is about movement and energy and um, using your hands to bring it to life. And um, we do lots of songs as well. Um, when I, my very first song I ever did was when I was trying to teach the kids about World War One and World War Two, and they were so bored to death. And this was back in North Carolina. And I said, repeat after me, World War One. And they're like, World War One. And I was like, 1914 to 1918, World War Two. And they're like, World War Two. I said, 1939 to 1945. I did this little dance and I didn't think anything of it. But then when I graded the test, a lot of the kids didn't know 1927 was Charles Lindbergh's flight, and they missed a lot of the details about the 20s. But every single kid, even my kid with learning issues, 1914, 1918, 1939, 1945. And I said, it was that little jingle. They learned that jingle. And so I said, I'm going to put everything to math. So I started so I'd blow up balloons and I have a balloon on every kid's desk with a magic marker. So you work out your math problem of the day on your balloon. If you get the problem right, you get a pop it. So it's just about um, excitement, energy. Um, sometimes I give the kids sunglasses and I say, uh-oh, you got to be detectives today because today's math problems are almost impossible. I play the Mission Impossible music in my classroom as we're doing the problems and I call them detective. Come on, Detective Brad. What do you think, Detective Sarah? Can you figure this out? All I do is play a little music and we wear sunglasses and I call them detectives. The math lessons, the basic math lesson I always do, but the kids love it because it's a little something different. So what we do at RCA is we show teachers that come here how you can do a little something different, but still make it magical. You don't have to spend a lot of time. It's just about doing something to get kids um, to focus and to be excited. You know, it's interesting. I got in trouble um, after watching you. <laughs> Um, I, I used to teach art and, and uh, for eight years, I was a team team worked with all the different teams of the school. But I remember being up on the counter, a huge library counter that they were throwing out that I 
adopted into my art classroom, walking across it, teaching the kids and everything. And, and one day the principal going, what are you doing? I said, have you ever, have you ever met Rod Clark? Have you ever seen him? <laughs> so thank you for all your methods because they really, really do work. They are amazing. Okay, so let's talk about wussification. Tell me, you've written a book on it. Um, tell us what wussification is. Basically, when things are wussified, um, that was a saying my grandmother used to use when um, things are not as, as hard as they could be, um, when you don't have expectations as high as they should be. And that's what we see in American education right now. We're currently ranked 41st in the world in terms of our science and math scores. When you take all test scores combined, we're not as low. We're 27th in the world. But when you think about how we have the world's number one economy, number one military, number one infrastructure, and then we're 41st in science and math, I think everybody knows um, the next generation, the, the global leaders of the next generation is going to be science and math related. It's going to be technology and in, in, in that field. And we're 41st in the world. It's just a crisis. And as we went across the, the nation, we visited, as I said, um, all 50 states, 300 school systems. And I said in classrooms, I wanted to see what is happening in America. We wanted to look at teachers and see what's going on. We interviewed kids and kids would say things like this. I hate school. I don't like school. It's, it's boring. I don't like my teacher. Um, it's too much work. We, we see classrooms where kids are like this. We see classrooms where teachers are sitting behind desks and not teaching. And then we interview teachers. And like you said, you read a title one school. Teachers will say this to us. Well, you don't know what I'm dealing with. I'm at the title one school. This is title one here. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And um, we'll say things like, well, God thought enough of you to put you at a place where you could truly make a difference in the lives of kids. Would you rather be somewhere where you didn't have to work as hard to affect the life of a child? You know, you really needed here. But, but anyway, just we just saw lots of things across the country that made us really sad. But the most um, striking thing we saw is that in classrooms in America, teachers don't teach to give to kids. If you've got 34 kids in your classroom, you're not saying I'm that you're the smartest one. You're who I'm going to teach. American educators say this, well, that, that kid's got it. And then you look at some kids in the middle and they're okay. But then you've got a whole horde of kids who don't understand. And American teachers, and when I started myself included, because I love those kids so much, my babies, let me help my babies. And you slow the lesson down and you really focus on those kids. So you've got a lot of kids who are average in our nation going, okay, this is boring. Then you got a lot of gifted kids who are becoming discipline problems because they're bored and they can't sit still and they're miserable in school. We're not, we're not inspiring American children to love to learn. School is boring. They say they're, they don't want to be there and it's because it's dumbed down. And as you know, as a teacher, if you're going to teach to the lowest kids in your class, you don't have to prepare a whole lot because what you teach is kind of easy. So there's not a whole lot to prepare and you just repetitive, you do the same thing over and over again. If you want to teach the smartest kid in your class, every night you're preparing, you're researching, you, you got to be on your game. You got to learn more. And so it's harder. So it's just easier to relax. Let's teach you the kids who aren't achieving. And that's why we end up at 41st in the world. We've also visited Japan and Finland and we go around the world and we go to China and we look at these other countries that have these, that have higher test scores. And what we find is that in their classes, they're really pushing those kids academically. They're really expecting a lot and we're not expecting enough. So when I talk about wussification, it's the lack of expectation that we expect of these expected kids. And I have, I think I know where it comes from. I think a lot of it comes from parents because parents in America right now is rough. It's rough. If I had a principal friend of mine in Texas that actually, she retired early. And I said, you can't leave the profession. You're the best principal ever. And she said, if it's an orphanage, I'm there. 
but I can't deal with these parents anymore. And also teachers in our profession, as you know, almost 50% of teachers who join our profession leave after the first four years and 40% of them say the number one reason was parents. And so parents are not only causing great teachers to leave the profession, but it's killing those of us that are in it. Um, parents are, are, are challenging. In America, it's like, my baby, um, don't, I'd rather you not say that to my baby. Well, I, um, my baby's gifted, so I don't understand um, why his grade is this. It must not be his fault, this grade's like this, because he's gifted. Parents are just dif difficult. They're hover mothers. Last year here at RCA, we had a parent come in because we gave this child, she had a 79. And this parent came in with a 40-page PowerPoint presentation on why we should give this child an 80 instead of the 79. The most ridiculous stuff ever. These parents are driving us crazy. And so, um, like on the Little League team, parents want all the kids to get a trophy. They want to see their kid to get a trophy so they can put that picture on the Facebook and picture my child with a trophy and look at my child, my child's smart, my child's athletic, look at my child. And so we're just giving all these trophies away. We're raising a generation of children who are being taught, just show up, you're going to get a trophy and everyone's going to tell you you're perfect and everyone tell you you're awesome and you're brilliant and you're smart. And then these kids become adults and they realize the world doesn't love them. And then they end up not being successful. They end up having issues and problems because they don't know how to cope with it and they're never as successful as they could have been. And that's what's happening in America. Where did we go wrong as a culture? How did we get here? Okay. So I have my own theories. So I think it really started getting bad in the 1980s. I don't know if you will remember this, but um, remember when Tylenol, when somebody was like tampering with Tylenol? Yes. Okay. It was a really big deal around that. And so for those of you who aren't aware, um, there was somebody, they were taking bottles of Tylenol because used to, when you opened them, it just popped open. The, the, the cotton wasn't there. They, the, the wrapping wasn't there. You can just take the Tylenol out. Some of us going in stores, taking them, lacing them with things, then putting them back. And then a lot of people were dying and getting sick from it. And then also the same time that happened, there was people going around, they were putting razor blades in the caramels for um, Halloween. That was the thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I think American parents started freaking out like, oh my goodness, we can't have Tylenol. They're putting stuff in children's Tylenol. Now they can't um, go trick-or-treating. And to me, I saw this a change in the psyche of parents of let me hold my child closer. Um, kids are being abducted. I don't want my kid to go out on the street. I'm going to watch over my child. And then around that time, a little bit later, they started this testing, this high stakes testing of how is your child doing on this test? And that kind of also made parents say, wait a minute, you're going to hold my kid accountable based off of this test score. So all of those things kind of combined made parents become a little bit more hover parents um, where they were more concerned. They were holding their kids close. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think a lot of it started then. You know, it's interesting because um, that I, I absolutely the helicopter parenting the you know, um, and now we have, you know, I, I've interviewed Gary Brooks. I have him on periodically. I love Gary. <laughs> Don't you love Gary? And so, you know, I have his mug, Aunt Becky, why are you moving those cones, right? So we have this this entitlement, right, as well with these parents um, that they don't understand that we all have to we, we all have to do these rules. We all have to do, we all have to struggle. Um you know, Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey. I think we have to teach our children the hero's journey. Sometimes it's it's hard. It's difficult. And um, uh, how how do you teach your kids that the the 
that they do have to work very hard? Yeah. First of all, we, we push them academically and um, we're really blunt with our kids. Um, there's a lot of love in this building. We visit the homes, we eat lunch with the kids. But we're also very blunt. I had a girl, she brought in um, a project. They had to do a, an outline of one of the characters from a book that we read and they had to do it on a, on a trifold. And I wanted to know what does the character see? What do they feel in their heart? For their feet, I want you to describe their journey, where they went. And she brought it in on this big sheet of paper and she had drawn it in pencil and she had done a few things, but it wasn't great. I gave it a 40 and she was um, really upset. And um, excuse, no, excuse me, I gave it a four out of a hundred. That's right. I gave it a four and um, she was upset. And even um, Kim Bearden, who's the co-founder of the school, she said, Ron, you can't give a kid a four because she did the project. Give her a 60. If you think it's bad, give her at least a 70 because she did the project, you know, but don't give the child a four. But I gave the four and the mother came in and she was so upset. And I said, you got to trust me. I said, we're trying to build something here. And it's a four. The next project, she had to take New York City and bring it to life. And um, her project, what she did was she took clay. She made the buildings. She made the Eiffel Tower. She put Christmas tree lights in it. So it lit up. She had these little billboards you could scroll in the content. And I gave that one a 70. Again, the mother was upset. She was upset. And I, I said, and I explained why. I said, here was my rubric. Here's what I said would be a 70. She falls in this line as a 70. For the final project, she had to take 50 items in a timeline and bring it to life. So she comes in with this big trash bag. And I'm like, what has she got here? And she pulls the trash bag down and she made a pyramid, like a full on Egyptian pyramid. She had sandpapered it. It was beautiful. I said, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I said, I'm going to give it a 50 because you made a great pyramid. That is not a timeline. She said, no, Mr. Clark, look. And she touched the button and the sides went and came down. And on the inside, she had done 250 items in the timeline. She had built catacombs. She had built sarcophagus, all of it. And I said, where'd you buy this stuff? She said, I made it all myself. I learned how to do it online and I printed it off so I can show you I made it myself. She said, Mr. Clark, I wanted to get an A. I said, this is an A. And um, that child went on to graduate from our school and get a $250,000 scholarship as an eighth grader. And the reason why she got that scholarship was because when she was in fifth and sixth grade, I was difficult with her and high expectations, but I showed her how to, to get there. Kim said to me, she said, Ron, um, she doesn't have a ton of help outside of RCA. Don't give it a four, don't give it a 70. And I said to her, well, if she asked you for help, would you have helped her? She said, well, of course I would. And I said, I would have helped her too. We've got to teach these kids to advocate for themselves, to ask for help. So we, we're blunt with kids, but we help them get to a point where they can be successful. That's why last year, our eighth graders got $4.8 million in scholarships from RCA. It's because of the expectation. Then another thing, we bring in lots of guest speakers who tell the kids, here's my journey. And especially, you know, we, our students, majority minority, um, 90% of our kids are black. And so we bring in African-American speakers who say, here's my journey. Here's how I became successful. And I think that's been really powerful for the kids to see um, the struggles that people overcame and how they didn't make excuses. So if we don't stop and f if we don't fix the wussification of our culture, where, where is it going to lead us to? Okay. Um, to be quite blunt, when you have an uneducated society, what you're going to have is people who will believe anything. Because when you can't think for yourself, you'll believe what anyone tells you and you're, you'll be led by fear. If someone scares you, you'll just listen to them because you can't make decisions for yourself. And um, I don't know if you look on the news, whether you're a liberal or conservative, I've heard some stupid stuff um, 
both sides. Fear based. Yeah, whatever whatever side you're on. Whenever they go to interview people on the street, I'm like, woo, I'm like, woo, don't interview the people because um, I'm afraid what they're going to say. And also, when you look at our media right now, it's, it's polar polarized, and you've got far right, you've got far left. And if you are an individual who gets your news from all here or all here, I think I'm backwards, right and left with y'all. Sorry. Right. But if, I, if you get your news from all of one source, you're going to start to think these other people are crazy. How right. could they think that? How could they think that? It's because they're getting their news from that source. And then when you talk about our social dilemma in terms of when you go to Facebook or Instagram or to TikTok, wherever you go, these algorithms if you click like that you liked a liberal post or a conservative post, what they're going to do is going to start flooding your page with that. And that's what you're going to get. An advertiser is going to know that's your way of thinking. They're going to put products that, and newspapers and guides. And so all you're seeing is one side because social media, those algorithms are, are taking you right or left. And that's all you're seeing. And then you're like, how could somebody like Donald Trump? Or you're saying, how could somebody not like Donald Trump? He's incredible. He's horrible. You're going to have these polar sides and it leads to the destruction of your society. And to me, that all comes back to a lack of education and a lack to a lack of Americans being able to think for themselves and being educated in a way where they're educated. by. We want to teach you how to think, not what to think. So how do you at your school work on that how to think? Because critical thinking is so important. How do you develop that in each one of your subjects and kids? Sure. One of the things that we tell our teachers when they first come here is that they can never give an opinion. So we are never allowed to give our own opinions when we teach, especially if it's politics, um, history, religion, we present facts. And we do something every week called the school-wide lesson where the whole school comes together. And for an hour, we look at politics, what's going on in the world. And everything is presented in terms of this is this article, this is this fact, this is what happened, and then we allow kids to make their decisions up for themselves. Um, a lot of times you have teachers who desperately want to give their opinion. And you've got some teachers out there who love Donald Trump. If you look online, you'll see kids who are saying, my teacher is pro-Trump, and this is the lesson she's making us do. This is biased. But then you've got a lot of teachers out there who can't stand Donald Trump. And then what they're teaching is um, saying, you know, he's so horrible. And so it's, we are, we have teachers who are trying to teach kids to think like they think instead of teaching them how to think. So removing the bias of your own opinion from the classroom, that helps a lot. You know, that's, that's really interesting because that, that has to be one of the more difficult things too, right? Is removing bias and be able to teach, um, the facts and and let students learn for themselves let them decide for themselves beautifully done okay. yeah because i have i have opinions too and i can't share them but um i shouldn't share them so ron you have also an incredibly well-received book another one <laughs> and this one okay move your bus all right this one is about management, not just of um, schools, because your school is a business. So it is about um, management. So talk to us really about the metaphor. What is the bus? Sure. So the bus kind of symbolizes your organization, whether it is a convenience store, a warehouse, um, a Fortune 500 company or a school. And so basically 
in every organization, you've got some people who are killing it. They want to push the bus. And the further the bus goes, the more successful the organization is. So some people are what I call runners. They've cut a hole in the Florida bus. They drop their feet and they just killing it. They come early. They stay late. They don't complain. They have great ideas. They don't get into the negative, naggy, naggy, talking about people. They're like, let's just be positive. I want to be part of something great. Then you got some people who cut their hole. They put their feet down and they're jogging. They keep up. They do their job. They're not quite a runner. A lot of them think they're runners. They'll come up to me and they've read the book. And they'll say, oh, I read your book. I want you to know something. I'm one of them runners. But the thing is, runners never tell you they're a runner. They don't want shine on themselves. They don't brag. They're just running. Joggers want a little bit more attention. Then you've got some who have cut a hole. They've dropped their feet. And I call them walkers. They're kind of being pulled by the bus. And they're like, wait a minute. Why are we going so fast? Slow down. They don't like change. They get resentful of people who are doing more because it's saying it's making them look bad. Like when it's a, there's a veteran teacher and they hire a new teacher at the school, the veteran teacher will say, listen, don't you put your own money in that classroom. You won't have nothing. You better leave at four o'clock. You got to have a healthy life work balance. They just say all these things. And why are you putting your effort into that? Don't you do that parent night? We ain't getting paid to teach the parents because these walkers desperately want everybody to walk. Because if you run, you highlight what they're not doing. And then you got some people on the bus. They ain't even taking, took the time to cut the hole. They just sat down. They're called the riders. And the riders kind of dead weight. And they're not doing their job at all. They sit behind their desk. They pass out worksheets. So everyone else has to move harder, to, excuse me, to compensate and to make up for what they're not doing. And so that is the bus. Those are the people on it typically. And then the book kind of talks about each one and how we can get each individual to go faster, to work harder, and how we can get everyone to be more successful. So let's talk about that in terms of how has this been received by different management uh, places out there? I know you've, you've done a lot of talking to, to uh, the corporate world as well. Yeah, it's kind of great because when, uh, when you're the boss and you say to somebody, you're a walker or you're, you're a rider, that does not go over well. But when you bring in Ron Clark or when you use Ron Clark's book and you read through it together and it says, if you say these types of comments, this falls into this category. And if you're doing these types of things, you're really not helping the organization. And this is, these are things your boss would probably like to say to you. When I'm saying it in a book, it, it takes, the, takes the stress off of the manager because they're not the one having to say it. And so that's why so many corporations and businesses use the book as a book study because it's just easier for me to say it and for them to say it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about investing in the runners. When you talked about a little bit earlier in, in regards to education, what does it mean to invest in your runners? Sure. Well, when you're a leader, typically what you do is you look at your organization. Some of your employees are killing it. Some are doing okay. And then some it's a mess. So typically what we do is we say, oh my goodness, let me spend my time here trying to get these people to be better. And if you want to put a lot of time and effort into training and sending them to workshops and professional development and really kind of help them be, become better, your rider might walk and your walker may jog. But those people, they're never going to run. They're never going to be your runner. And so you're end up spending all of your emotional capital there. You think about them at night, you lie in bed, you want to do with these people. And that's not help your organization. What we found is that if you put all of your energy on the runner, inspiring the runner, thanking the runner, giving the runner tools and resources, helping to make the runner better, 
fire the runner up, trusting the runner, giving the runner leadership opportunities, letting the runner run and take charge. This swell starts in your organization. And that is when you see a lot of success. And then it's really easy for you to say to others, we really want to have an organization where we have runners. And I notice right now you've been doing these things and saying some of these things. Do you feel like this is the best place for you? And if you want to be here, how can I help you? How can I help you so that you can run and we can be more successful together? It just, it opens up this conversation where you can tell everyone, let's go in this direction. So in the education system, in, in, in let's just say your school, do you invest only in the runners or, uh, or do you invest in everyone? How does that happen? You invest in everyone. But what happens is that the majority of my time here at my school goes to my runners, the majority of my time. And, you know, most of the people I've hired, they're all runners. So it makes it easier on me. But in other schools I've been in, it's the runners. You've got to focus on the runners primarily. When you focus on them, you highlight them, you cheer for them, you support them. Everyone else kind of gets the message. You'll get your runners going a little bit faster. The walkers will start going in that direction. And then honestly, you'll have a lot of people who are riders who will quit. And we're all like, hallelujah, because you want them to go somewhere else anyway. But um, but in some situations, you'll have those riders who will say, oh, my goodness, the disparity between what I'm doing and what they're doing has grown so great. I've got to start doing more. And then you'll have them start to get on board. And so, of course, you help them. You meet with them. You come up with goals and strategies. You offer assistance. But your mental capacity and the way you look at your organization is focused on your runners. For example, we've had some people at RCA, I'll be honest, that I was like, uh, probably, probably wasn't the best hire. Mm. Oh, shouldn't have hired that person. It happens sometimes. People fool you. They fool you in interviews. Oh, yeah. And so what, what I've done, though, is instead of when I think of my school, thinking of that person and the negative and thinking of that, I see my school as all of the brilliance and the wonder and the positivity and the energy now I'm handling that problem. I'm handling that problem, but I don't let that guide my emotional way of seeing the school. Hmm. So how do you inspire from the top? Yeah. Um, you got to work harder than anybody. Um, people say all the time, Ron, I want to start school. How do I start a school? I'm like, oh, it's easy. You build an altar, you crawl up on it, you sacrifice yourself and all your family. And then there's the school because you got to You got to sacrifice yourself. And so Kim and I, we knew from day one, I teach, I teach all day and I run the school and I do all the fundraising and all the professional development and all the merchandising and the construction. I mean, we're in charge of everything, but I got to teach all day and I got to grade my papers and I, I don't have an assistant. I do it all myself. And because I do that, my staff, they can't say nothing to me. Because, look, I'm doing this plus everything else. And, you know, the kids are excited and they love my classroom. So to lead from the top, you got to invest. You got to you got to be happy. You got to be in a good mood. The most important thing a leader can do is just be happy and be in a good mood. And look, I ain't happy all the time. And I want to <laughs> complain sometimes. The first year this school opened, I was like, Ooh, these kids are killing me. And oh, my goodness. And that eighth grade mama's on my nerves. And I had diarrhea. I was complaining. And my staff said, well, those kids are on my nerves, too. And who's that mama thinks she is? I had diarrhea. Maybe there's something in the water. We need to get the water here tested. And so I realized when I was negative, the whole organization would be negative. So I realized, Ron, you can never complain another day of your life. 
And I thought to myself, I'm gonna have to lie every day forever. But I said, I gotta come in this building, be happy, smile, be in a good mood. And I realized that when I would do that, my staff would be happy. I'd go into a faculty meeting, having a horrible day with my sixth graders. And I'd go in there, y'all, what's up? I love y'all. And those sixth graders, I loved them too. Y'all, I'm blessed to teach them and I'm blessed to work with y'all. Let's get to work. And my staff would say, well, well, they are, they are sweet. We are, we are blessed. All right, let's get to work. And they'd be happy. And so it just comes from you and your attitude it comes from the top. So let's talk about how you go about it. You've, you've said something several times here today. How do you go about hiring your staff? What does that process look like for you? Yeah. Okay. So it's a lot. All right. Okay. So, for, all right. Um, there's two different streams here. Um, one is our teaching staff and then one is our support staff for the teachers. I never hire anybody unless I watch them teach. And I've been doing that now since I was back in North Carolina, because wow. um, you got to see what you're going to get. A lot of times a very polished, sharp interview, not so great with kids. And sometimes that awkward, quirky interview, incredible with kids. And so I want to see what we're going to get. So we usually, we take applications, we, we Skype with lots of people. Then when we get out to the final 10, they come in, they have to teach a lesson. And then from there, the final two that we usually end up, there's two, sometimes three. I take each one out to lunch individually. I just want to spend an hour with you because look, if you can't entertain me for an hour, I ain't going to hire you because I'm a great conversationalist. And if you can't keep me entertained for an hour, I'm not going to see you entertaining my kids for an hour. And then I watch things because I was a waiter for 12 years. Even when I was teaching, I, I won the American Teacher of the Year Award. I had to go to work at night, still wait tables to afford to live. So I look to see how they treat a waiter because two types of people. Some people, when they order, they look at the menu. Oh, yes, I'll get the cheeseburger and fries and they hand the menu. But then some people look the waiter in the eyes. How are you doing? Can I please get the cheeseburger and the fries? Thank you so much. The ones that look you in the eyes, they're going to tip better. And they're going to leave a neater table. And I just learned that. So I just looked to see how do they treat the waiter. And um, then um, the key thing, though, is just the heart. Because you might not know the curriculum or the pedagogy as well as I would like you to. But if you just got a heart and a love for kids, um, you're probably going to get the job. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, it is true. How we teach people who serve us, if you will, means so much in our world, you know. And uh, oh. Wonderful. Okay. I want to go back. Uh, these are audience questions. Okay. And so I want to come back to civility and the lack of it that we see in our country right now. Okay. So the question is, what can we do about it? I think it all comes from, from partly the school, then partly the home. Um, it's not happening in the home. And so a lot of teachers will say, but ain't our job. And our job to teach manners, you know, that's the parent's job. And so we could say that as a profession and okay, I get it. You're right. But what's going to happen to our nation? Um, if we have an opportunity, if we see something wrong in our society or something lacking, kindness is lacking, understanding, intellect, respect for other opinions of all this is lacking. Look, everybody comes through our classrooms. And if we all teachers go on the same page and we teach these things, we can profoundly affect the lives of kids, we can also change our society. And so I think it comes from teachers and from the school system. And I don't think we can just say it's not our, our job to do it. I think we just have to um, feel the need. Very good. Okay. So the Ron Clark Academy is a middle school. Why did you choose 
those grades to focus on? Sure. As we traveled across the country and we went to all the schools, we visited over 100 elementary schools, over 100 middle or what they call junior high schools and over 100 high schools. And so we actually found some really good high schools in America. I was like so impressed. And we found some great elementary schools we loved. We didn't find one middle or junior high school in all 50 states where when we walked out of that building where our team said, that was incredible. Love that. That felt great. Those kids were happy. And so partly it's because middle school kids, mm, lots of emotions, lots going on. They learn how to disrespect you quickly. Eighth graders will hurt your feelings. It's um, it's a hard time. And so the teachers tend to be kind of, we know what we're dealing with. Um, it's just, it, it doesn't feel as exciting or elementary school or in some places, high school. Also in our country, test scores for every cohort group in our country increases up until fifth grade. So Asian females, Caucasian males, African-American males, everybody on average test scores increase up to fifth grade. It's after fifth grade when every cohort group in our entire country declines, except for Caucasian females. So y'all do okay. But the rest of us, um, we, we drop, we start to decline. And so we wanted to do a really intensive study here in terms of middle school. And so we started with fifth through eighth grade. Now we do fourth through eighth grade. We work really hard to turn the tide on the test scores and we figured out how to do it. That's amazing. Okay. Um, what difference have you seen in high school and college with the performance of your students, the ones who come through your school? Yeah, um, they've killed it. Um, when kids leave here, we have proud taught them how to be confident, how to speak up, how to be bold, how to present in an incredible way. And so we find that a lot of our kids, when they go to high school, as the they're the freshman class president, they're the homecoming king. We've had a homecoming king as a freshman. We've had a homecoming king as a, a homecoming queen as a freshman. They, they start clubs. They're they're um, they're vocal. They're involved. They're the captain of the football team. Um, they do an incredible job. So wherever kids have gone to high school, they've really thrived. And then in college, they've started um, clubs and communities and committees. And um, this has been great. Whether it's Princeton or whether it's Georgia Tech, our kids have just really, really made us so proud. So, Ron Clark, what is your favorite grade to teach? Okay, it is easy. That's the easiest question. It's fifth grade. There is no grade better in the world. And if you out there want to teach one day and if you get offered a fifth grade position, don't you ever change it. Don't you think the grass is greener? I love fifth grade because it's when kids really start to solidify their sense of humor. Um, you can be sarcastic a little bit with them and joke. Um, they can read um, higher order novels, uh, higher order level novels. It's just great. I love fifth grade. <laughs> sixth grade, I like too. the first half of the year. Second half of the year, sixth grade, like, oh, me. You start to have a little bit of trouble. But um, fifth grade's great. Okay, great. So are you working? We've talked about the pandemic. We talk about what's going on with COVID. Uh, are you helping parents with distance learning? Yeah. So um, I, I had never been an online teacher. So when COVID hit, I was like, oh, my goodness. It hit and our school closed in March on a Monday. So my staff is like, how are we going to do distance learning? We don't do virtual teaching. What are we going to do? I said, well, here's what we're going to do. Not only are we going to learn how to do it, 
We're going to learn how to do it by Friday. And on Friday, we are going to show every teacher in America how to do it as well. We're going to go online and do a professional development for free for educators. So my staff just jumped in. And by that Friday, we had mastered Google Meets and Zoom, Google Classroom. We learned all of it. And on Friday, we offered educators in America a free opportunity to learn how to teach online. 220,000 educators turned tuned in for three hours to learn how to do it. And so our school, we really showed educators how to teach virtually. Then the next month, we did another one, and Miss Oprah Winfrey came on to be our guest speaker to help us. We had another 220,000 people. So um, we've continued to do that for our teachers. But in addition to that, we've done a lot of work to help our parents and um, parents who, if you've never had a kid in your house, who's a virtual learner is a whole different world and it's much harder than I think anybody would ever realize. And so we did a lot of workshops with our parents virtually where we showed them, here's how you set up the workspace. Here's how you do Google classroom. But when we did it, we had games, we had things involved through quizzes that the parents could participate in. And we went through it step-by-step. Then we we had every house, we um, determined their bandwidth and their speed of their internet in their home. And then for those who it just wasn't up to cut and snuff, we worked with Comcast who came in and for $20 a home provided strong internet access and in all of the family's homes. And then we made sure that every kid had a device and iPad so that they could do the, um, the work at home even if the family didn't have a computer. So um, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Normally, normally being a teacher running a school is a lot of work, but then when you flip and now everybody's virtual, it's a whole lot of work. But, um, but you know, I think teachers really stepped up to, I mean, they really did. They stepped up and really did amazing work. And it was amazing how many people had to turn it around in five days, 10 days, and and they did it. And, you know, kudos to our teachers, right? Can I just say, if anybody out there who is not a teacher, teaching virtually is so much harder than teaching in person. I thought easier. What do you do? You just be on the computer, but there's some things – It is so much harder. It takes me three times as longer to plan a lesson for a virtual lesson as a lesson in person. It is so much work. I was up late late every night, all weekend teaching virtually. And I'm so excited because in three weeks, we're finally coming back in person. I'm worried about it too, because you know, to COVID, but um, it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. work. Okay. 30 seconds. What was Survivor like? Oh, um, love Survivor. Um, It was a dream of mine for 20 years. Um, finally, they were filming during the summer. And so I asked Kim Bearden, school will be closed during the summer. Can I go do Survivor? She said, go do Survivor. So I applied and it was wonderful. I made it 35 days. Um, I was kind of villainous on there, which surprised a lot of people. But I just wanted to play hard. I wanted to play hard because I didn't want people to say, oh, he's a teacher. He's going to be so nice. And he's such a nice guy. I wanted to show that, you know what, I will go out there and give it my all. So I tried to be a villain, but it didn't work. <laughs> That's so so. It's so great. Okay, now I have a Nelda question for you. Ron, why do you do what you do? I don't know. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> Crazy? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't, I've lost my mind. I think I've lost my mind. Like this is this job. It is all day, all night, all. Like I said, you just got to sacrifice yourself. I run a nonprofit, so no, but I don't make money from this school. Nobody's making money from here. We're a nonprofit, and it's my whole life. And 
we make money when an educator comes to visit. So when educators come here, 600 a week, that's how we make our funds. And our students' parents, they pay $45 a month, most of them. So that's not where we get the money. When COVID hit and the school closed, we haven't made any money from these educators coming since then. So that's the whole way we run our school. And we don't have some huge endowment. So we've had to work so hard to find donors and partnerships and do virtual training for schools. And it's just been so, it's, it's just a lot. Why do I do it? I think I might go back to my very first year teaching. Those kids didn't want to be there. They were not excited. And by the end of the year, they had changed. They were, they were completely different humans. They were happy. They were excited. They loved learning. They, they completely changed. And I was like, oh my God, as a teacher, you can change a human's life. You can get them excited about learning, show them the magic of the world. And I think I always hold on to that. And I keep working hard because I know we're magical and we can change lives if we don't give up and if we don't stop. So I don't stop. Thank you. I just want you to know, Ron, I I really, again, just have always just really uh, been intrigued by what you do, been encouraged by what you do. I want to encourage you to continue what you do. Um, Times will get better. Things will get better. Um, But thank you. You probably do not really even understand the influence that you've made, the impact that you've made on education in America. And I thank you for being that hero. I thank you for being the one who keeps going. I appreciate that in you. And thank you for doing this interview today. Of course. Anytime I appreciate you, Nelda. Thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Ron, before you go, where can we find you and what's up next for you? Sure. So our website is ronclarkacademy.com. And you can also find me on Instagram. I don't even really know the, the handle. I think it's at ronclark underscore underscore. And then I'm on Twitter as well, but it's not hard to find if anybody really wanted to find it and to follow me. Um, We're constantly posting the work that we do also on our Rock Clark Academy Instagram page. You can see I'm a window into our school. But in terms of what's next, so um, I've always wanted to write a novel. When I was in fifth grade, my, my fifth grade teacher, she wasn't one to give compliments. And she slammed one of my papers on my desk one day and I was scared to death of her. And she said, it was one of my writing papers. She said, Ron Clark, one day you'll write a novel and everyone's going to buy it and it's going to be incredible. And she stormed off and all the kids were looking at me like, oh my God, because she never said something positive. And I was like, Lord have mercy. And so I've always wanted to write that novel to make that prophecy come through, but I never could do it because I worked so much. So four years ago, I started writing this novel and um, I just finished it. It took me four years to write it. And um, it's a magical story about this little boy who has a sleeping disorder and it leads to some adventures. And so um, I've just now finished it. So my next steps are to get that published. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Delta. We'll see you.